Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And we're back with another appendix to our rebooted interrogation of the Harry Potter books. That's right, Hannah. And this is our first guest appendix, or should I say, append guestomy. I really don't like that for a variety of reasons, including that it sounds like we are surgically removing our guests, when in fact what we're trying to do is surgically suture them into our bodies. Ugh, yuck. So to mark the occasion, I thought it would be fun if in the sorting chat, we talked about one-off lectures that really impacted us. And that could be like a, a workshop or a guest lecture or a conference talk or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'll give you an example, by which I mean, (laughs) I'm going to go first. Thank goodness. (laughs) Okay. So way back, maybe 2009, 2010, no way to know, I attended a harm reduction workshop for service providers, and it was facilitated by the folks from Toronto Public Health. I knew about harm reduction which is why I attended the, I I wanted to go to the workshop because I knew about it and I thought it would be good. But I did not know the history of the criminalization of drugs in Canada. And that is what I learned in this workshop. The workshop introduced me to the very relationship between first wave feminism, temperance, and the criminalization of substance use. And it like radically shaped my approach to studying literature, if you can believe it, particularly in relation to the so-called Famous Five, the white ladies who gave white women the vote in Canada. I am struggling to narrow this down because so many 
one-off guest lectures and unexpected guest appearances have ended up being so, so vital and so important to my learning. You know, the power of the guest. Totally. But I am going to say that probably around the same time, like 2009, 2010, I attended a conference at York University put on by their women and gender studies department Mm -hmm. that was celebrating the work of a professor who was retiring. It was a day long sort of symposium conference that was critical race feminism. And it was my first exposure, not only to this literature, but also to the experience of being a white woman sitting in a feminist space that was predominantly not white women and the embodied experience of encountering my own whiteness and the way that it signified in this space. And it was just a phenomenal learning experience and just like a really transformative moment. And it wasn't, you know, I just kind of went because it was nearby and I was like, yeah, sure, this sounds cool. I'll go check it out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, this is going to change everything about how I do my work forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no pressure on our guests today, but. Yeah. <laughs> As always, we want to make sure that we impress our guests by brushing up on the relevant conversations we've had thus far. Let's get to it in revision. Today's topic is Holocaust studies, and although we've never talked about the Holocaust explicitly, we have touched on a number of relevant topics. Mm-hmm. Most recently, we looked at eugenics as a principle of social engineering and talked about how both historically and today, certain traits are deemed undesirable, which allows state-run systems like immigration, healthcare, and the criminal justice system to target, isolate, and ultimately remove such traits from the general population. And that conversation built on a number of previous guest episodes. Uh, Jess Battis joined us ages ago, way back, (laughs) to introduce us to the idea of the social-cultural model of disability as resistant to the medical model that treats disability as a medical problem. Taya Garbeza joined us a short while later to talk about control and management of neurodiversity and chronic illness. Aisha Wilkes introduced us to MAD studies as a lens through which to understand the aesthetic of madness in popular literature. And Mercedes Eng talked to us about the prison industrial complex as a contemporary tool in the eugenic and genocidal management of populations. We also, in our episode on animal studies, talked about how the human-animal divide is constructed deliberately as a way of dehumanizing people in order to justify horrific acts of violence against them. In fact, in our second episode on that topic, we drew from AFCO's insistence that the conceptual violence of dehumanization both animalizes people of color and anchors animal oppression to race. Mm. There are so many relevant threads that we could pull out for revision but um let's let's just get right into transfiguration class and hand things over to our guest what do you think hannah i think let's do it
well. Now that we've proven ourselves as very good students capable of grappling with hard concepts, it's time to learn from our guest in Transfiguration class. Our guest today is Andrea Dara Cooper, pronouns she, her. Andrea is associate professor and Leonard and Toby Kaplan scholar in modern Jewish thought and culture at UNC Chapel Hill. She received her PhD from New York University and her BA from the University of King's College. And she is originally from Toronto. (gasps) CanCon! She is the author of Gendering Modern Jewish Thought, published with Indiana University Press in 2021. Welcome, Andrea. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. We are delighted to have you here. I mean, am I going to say more so now that we realize that you're Canadian? Yeah, I am going to (laughs) say it. It's bold. It's a bold take. I don't believe in nationalism. I think the nation state's a false construct. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. I feel strong ties to my my home nation state, despite all of that. (laughs) It's a funny thing, isn't it? How we can be attached to things while knowing that they're not real. I mean, it's almost like Canadian culture is designed to do that. Yeah, that's all I want to talk about now, but that's not what we're talking about. This is not a Canadian culture podcast uh, yet. (laughs) So, (laughs) Andrea, you pitched this topic to us. Do you want to maybe start by telling us a little bit about what it is about the Harry Potter series that lends itself to a reading through the lens of Holocaust studies? Yes, absolutely. So when I first read the series, I noticed a number of parallels that I thought were a bit more implicit. And then I found that they were getting more explicit as the series went on, to the point that when I read book seven, I was just struck again and again by these like Mm -hmm. really overt references. And I've compiled a bunch. They're not in a handy chart. They're in kind of no form. (laughs) But anyway, we can go over them later. And it struck me upon reading the series that the chronology was arranged to map onto the history of World War II and its aftermath. Mm. So in particular, the 1945 match between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, upon which Mm. Dumbledore Mm -hmm. is victorious, right? That's 1945. That is when Mm -hmm. the Allies defeat Nazi Germany. And that's just one example. And so it's, it's possible canonically that there are other reasons for that timeline. But for me as a reader... Um, I was very much convinced that this was a deliberate move to reflect 20th century history of European totalitarianism and genocide and its aftermath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Immediately, first place my brain wants to go is to be like, okay, so what are the implications for the series if we're reading it as an analogy? But that is not the segment we're on yet. So we're going to save those very exciting implications for after we've learned a little bit more about Holocaust studies as a field. And this is this is kind of one of your fields of study, yes? Yeah. So my my graduate training was in um, Hebrew and Judaic studies. And one of my current main research interests is in post-Holocaust ethics and uh, philosophy. And yeah, I, I'm really taken up by a number of theorists and thinkers and writers who deal with the ethical, literary, philosophical implications of this event. So 
I have learned recently that it is a mistake to assume that everybody knows what the Holocaust is. And so I think that it might be beneficial for us to just start with a with a primer. So Andrea, could you give us an explanation of what the Holocaust is and maybe explain how and why there is something called Holocaust studies? Yes, absolutely. The Holocaust was the systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million European Jews by the Nazi German regime and its allies and collaborators. And this took place throughout Europe between 1933, when the Nazis rose to power, and 1945, with the defeat of Nazi Germany by the Allied powers. Now, the Holocaust is also sometimes referred to by the Hebrew word Shoah, which is a word meaning catastrophe. And, you know, something I also like to think about with my students is why we use the terminology we do for historical events. Mm -hmm. So Holocaust is actually a Greek term, um, which originally referred to a sacrifice, an all-consuming burning sacrifice. Mm. And as you can imagine, that's a complicated term because it suggests, right, that there is some kind of a logic, a rationalization, some kind of an economy of sacrifice. And there is no way to rationalize. There is no way we can think about sacrifice in the context of of this, you know, mass genocide. It, it makes me think of of the sort of teleological impulse in how we tell the story of history, which is to say that there is so often this impulse to say this terrible thing happened so that, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. because then, you know, these people lost their lives, but then we get mm-hmm. X and there's that desire to sort of apply a sort of logic of causality Right. Mm-hmm. to atrocity and and that that language of sacrifice has that that subtext to me that it's so much of of how we talk about world war ii and about the holocaust was you know people gave their lives so that we could have mm-hmm. freedom question mark yeah and a number of thinkers will say that martyrdom became impossible during the holocaust that people didn't even People couldn't even die in the way that we've thought about it before because this had been an unprecedented mass genocide, you know, historically. So a lot of that language of sacrifice and martyrdom becomes kind of just meaningless. Mm -hmm. So terminology is important. Also, you know, in a lot of departments and, and research avenues, we encounter Holocaust and genocide studies because of the importance of studying mass atrocity comparatively. And that's something mm-hmm. I'll I mm-hmm. probably mention a bit later, but certainly we can't study any of these um, events in isolation. Um, so for example, there's a documentary out that thinks about the relationship between uh, the institution of American enslavement and you know how, how Hitler uh, was actually inspired by Americans' treatment of uh, indigenous peoples and um, enslaved peoples. So we we have to think about these comparatively. The version of that that we often talk about in Canada is the fact that the apartheid system in South Africa was modeled on the reserve system used to sort of manage a a cultural genocide against indigenous peoples in Canada. Mm -hmm. That these are not coincidentally mirrored systems that these are people mm-hmm. people learn from other atrocities 
Yeah, so sometimes, you know, I, I find my students will often say that they've maybe studied the Holocaust in isolation. Oh, that's something that happened over there in, in Europe, but couldn't happen in North America. Well, actually, right. the ideas were a lot closer than we would like to comfortably think. Mm-hmm. 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 So a bit more historical background. Um So Mm -hmm. the Nazi regime enacted uh, discriminatory laws and organized violence targeting Jews, um, culminating in a plan that Nazi leaders referred to as the final solution, which was the organized and systematic mass murder of European Jews. And the regime implemented this genocide between 1941 and 1945. Sometimes the term extermination is used. But I try to avoid that terminology because it actually takes up the Nazi goal to dehumanize. I was going to say it's Mm. pretty dehumanizing, isn't it? That's very Mm -hmm. that's very intentional. Right. And that's something, of course, that you've talked about a lot in your podcast. This language of animalization and racialization and dehumanization is powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. so so dehumanization in this way is sort of part of the larger sort of ideology of anti-Semitism. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a little bit more about anti-Semitism as an ideology, sort of what it means and maybe a bit about its origins? That's a great idea. Yeah. So Nazi hatred against Jews was based on racial anti-Semitism. And there's also a, a helpful article online that I can send to you all if, if it's if it's useful. And so racial anti-Semitism is the discriminatory and racist idea that Jews are a separate and inferior race. Mm-hmm. And this developed along with the broader racist view of the world that was based on the alleged superiority of the white race over other races. So Nazi Germany was drawing on this, this idea of racial anti-Semitism. And this is based in the supposed superiority of the white race. This was inspired and enforced by the contact of European colonist conquerors with indigenous populations. This was inspired by, you know, so-called pseudoscience or social Darwinism. And, you know, the thing about that term pseudoscience is there's nothing scientific about this, right? Racism is not scientific. It is totally illogical. There's no logic. It's completely absurd. To see other Mm -hmm. humans as not human is absurd. Nothing scientific. So, I use that term pseudoscience, but I also try to, you know, point out that there's it, it's really not not scientific. Interestingly, I've seen historians of science push back against the phrase pseudoscience from the opposite direction. That they're like calling it pseudoscience upholds an ongoing belief that science with a capital S is a thing that is objective right. and and always true and that at mm. the time, like in the 19th century, this wasn't pseudoscience. It was science. Yeah, it was right, internalized right, right. mainstream science. Yeah. Working scientists, universities were practicing eugenics. And so it is this, this desire to hold simultaneously in this weird term, pseudoscience, to be like, no, it was the science then. And mm-hmm. it has zero foundation in anything we would currently recognize as scientific knowledge. Yeah. And I I think to go along with that, to remember that it was legal to persecute and target people at this time. It was considered to be part of the the greater good. Right. So Mm -hmm. what we what we think of now as morality, you know, that that science, there's something inherently good about it. Right. I mean, all of these all of these ideas, their their constructions, their ideologies and Mm -hmm. what was considered 
scientifically good and great and, you know, legal um, was what we would today consider abhorrent. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another good reminder, not only that, like, science is not a sort of objective, a historical category, and neither is the law. Nope. Indeed. So maybe, Andrea, talking a little bit about the law and how this was legal, can you talk a bit about the, and I hesitate to use the word, logic behind racial anti-Semitism in the context of, for example, eugenics? So they were drawing upon racial eugenics, you know, this anti-Semitic ideology, arguing that Jews spread their pernicious, this is in quotes, their pernicious influence by actually polluting so-called pure Aryan blood. And they were polluting Aryan blood through intermarriage and sexual intercourse and procreation with non-Jews. So they argued that this Jewish racial intermixing was contaminating and weakening host nations, and that this was furthermore part of a conscious Jewish plan for world domination. The thing that immediately comes to mind when I hear this language is people like Elon Musk saying that white people not having enough white children is the like most worrying path that humanity's on like this panic over like quote-unquote replacement levels that like white people aren't having enough children to replace ourselves which seems just like so patently eugenicist but i guess that is what's happening in the 21st century we're just bringing eugenics back and calling them edgy truths or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can see in the white supremacist chant, right, Jews will not replace us, the explicit reference to replacement theory. So unfortunately, we have the persistence and proliferation today of these white supremacist and anti-Semitic ideas that if Jews are not the ones who are actually doing the racial intermixing, they're somehow in charge of this conspiracy. So whenever you hear this kind of language of a cabal or, a, you know, controlling or whatever, um, your ears should perk up and be, you know, a little bit concerned or a lot concerned. <laughs> you know what? I guarantee you, Andrea, I am really worried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, that was a panic. That was a panic laugh. Yeah. Okay. So I wonder if we can come now to the ethical thinking that you referenced earlier, because you mm -hmm. said, you know, you're teaching a course, you regularly teach a course on post-Holocaust ethics. And I think sort of part of the conversation for, you know, that we want to have in this episode is how does the Holocaust as an ethical crisis then inform how we think about ethics and morals moving forward. So can you can you talk to us a little bit about post-Holocaust ethics and and what kind of theory emerged in the wake of these events? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to mention, because I, I didn't mention already, that the reason for a lot of scholars in the field that we refer to anti-Semitism without the dash with lowercase a, lowercase s, is because we want to challenge their idea, the idea that there is something called Semitism. So the dash kind of reifies the idea that there is this legitimate form of racial classification. 
right? So it, it makes this idea, tries to make this idea kind of concrete. So by referring to anti-Semitism without the dash, we're, you know, trying to, I guess, challenge or, or at least at least highlight the fact that this idea is a construction, that it's ideological. Mm-hmm. So how do we want to um, reflect upon the the ways that different thinkers have responded to the Holocaust. So first of all, this changes. We have uh, some thinkers who are philosophically and politically responding fairly early on. Um, Hannah Arendt is a great example. Um, So she writes The Origins of Totalitarianism um, not not too long after. Um, And actually, a lot of folks were referencing her work in the past number of years, um, saying there are haunting parallels. So, you know, she's thinking about these political <laughs> sorry, structures. I'm sorry, I want me to laugh, just the tone of voice in which she just said haunting parallels. <laughs> really just felt like, really felt like 2023 in a nutshell. Yeah. Just like, mm-hmm. and there are haunting, haunting parallels. parallels. <laughs> I know, I, I, I hope this episode isn't too much of a bummer. Colon, the story <laughs> of which, please. So Arendt is saying... Okay, um, how do we reflect on this history politically, philosophically? And, you know, what she's trying to do is to say, on the one hand, we can look at this genocidal history and say it's incomprehensible. We cannot possibly understand it. We can never possibly think to understand it. And Elie Wiesel famously says the only you know, respectful thing to do is is to be silent and not to, you know, question the victims. And this is this is very soon after the war. And so you have this question of if we're trying to understand it, if we're trying to render it comprehensible, are we disrespecting the victims? But on the other hand, if we don't try to map the political structures, the philosophical uh, fault lines that made this history possible, then we cannot hope to prevent this from reoccurring. Um, and I should say that we also, of course, want to consider alongside this history, the Romani genocide. Um, we want to think about the other groups who were targeted and persecuted as well. So there's the question of, on the one hand, this, this mass genocide is incomprehensible. One million Jewish children, six million Jews, 500,000 to maybe a million Romani so this is, on the one hand, incomprehensible. On the other hand, how do we try to understand this history? So you have different thinkers, for example. You have the critical theorists from the Frankfurt School saying, how do we understand that a culture this advanced produced barbarism at this level? How does that challenge our conception of quote-unquote high culture? I was about to say, I was like, advanced according to whom? But I guess that's the whole point. Exactly. Right. You, you've you reflected so elegantly on this podcast about the problems with suggesting there is high culture and low culture. Problems with suggesting that certain people need to be civilized and others are inherently barbaric, right? Well, if we reflect on the fact that the most so-called civilized community or uh, nation state was able to enact the most barbaric of acts, then this forces us to rethink how we understand culture, how we understand education, and how we understand community. Yeah, this is my, I mean, this is the the point I come back to over and over again when we talk about reading as an improving activity. But it is Mm -hmm. part of this larger, like, you can't make any, in the wake of the Holocaust, you can't make any types of claims about 
cultural sophistication having moral weight to it. Mm-hmm. I think, too, this is part of why I know this this issue of the incomprehensibility of the Holocaust is is so difficult to grapple with because because the 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 reality of it is incomprehensible. And yet it was a systematic and deliberately executed plan. And so it is quite literally comprehensible in that it was designed. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't a fluke. It was designed and initiated and put into action. And so even trying to find a way to talk about the impact, like the how it has shaped thinking is is very complicated because precisely what we talked about earlier in that we the idea of it being a sacrifice or the kind of um the teleological idea of well this happened therefore this mm-hmm. um yeah. a kind of causality and and i i am living in my body right now the very complicatedness of trying to have a conversation about it. That desire to say, how did this happen? And that sense that any how will attribute logic to something Mm -hmm. that feels inherently outside of of logic, because to attribute logic Mm -hmm. to it would be to normalize it or draw it into the world Mm -hmm. of rational human action. And yet, to claim that it is fundamentally outside of logic is to let all of our human systems off the hook totally solve this problem for us andrea sure yeah i that (laughs) totally doable (laughs) yeah so i you know what you're what you're both alluding to is the fact that this was a bureaucratic process enacted by a government that um, this required the participation and cooperation of so many people. This this was very much central to Nazi ideology. And, you know, part of the way that this was um, accomplished was to try to convince the German population that the Jews were actual vermin that needed Mm. to be exterminated right? That it was for the greater good of Europe. And I mention this because I think we'll be, this will be relevant for our, for our later conversations today. So historians, philosophers, theorists, you know, writers will grapple with the question of how did so-called ordinary people enact such atrocity? You know, o- often my, my students are surprised that the only thing um, that uh, was kind of driving certain perpetrators was the concern about being socially outcast. That was really often all that drove them, you know, to to murder. So so these are there's just a number of sociological and, and, and ethical questions to grapple with. In my own research, I'm interested in thinking about how identifying the human with the animal or with even, you know, the sub-animal was essential to the anti-Semitic program. Mm-hmm. And how the racialized thinking that inflicts the trope of animality upon certain groups of humans has dangerous consequences. Mm-hmm. And we see this play out in a number of historical circumstances. So why is this kind of what you've called racialized animalization? Why is that process so widespread in modernity? Yeah. 
you know, a thinker who has been helpful for me in thinking through this question of animalization and racialization is the literature scholar Zakia Aman Jackson. Uh, her recent book is Becoming Human Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. And she points out that racialized animalization is essential to liberal humanism and to the development of what we might think of as, you know, Western liberalism. And she wants to think about how the very category of the human is contingent, provisional, um, alongside mm. racialized and politicized lines, and how both humans and animals are animalized in an intersecting process. What does that mean? Can you unpack that, that phrase a little bit more? Absolutely. So, you know, you've talked on the podcast about how the legacy of imperialism runs on the logic of the inherent good of the civilizer, right? Or uh, we might say, you know, the, the logic of enslavement depends on an assumption of species difference among, among humans. So these systems want to attach animalization to certain humans in order to disqualify them from ethical consideration, in yeah. order to mobilize and produce racial difference. And to define the human and who ethics attached to. Yeah. Right. In order to define the human against the other. And that other, unsurprisingly, is gendered, is raced. It's only surprising if we forget that race was literally invented in order to justify this process. Exactly. Right. It's not like race existed as a set of categories. And then white people were like, which race shall we choose to animalize? It was right. race was a technology of division that was used to justify like racialization mm -hmm. and animalization as a justification for oppression. Right. Yeah. Willa M. Johnson points out that whiteness is a, a stable category, but an ever shifting category. Right. And so this is a category that is mobilized to construct and explain difference. And yet it has been attached to different groups of humans at different times historically. So, Andrea, I just I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between these ideologies and liberalism, because I think that in our current society, we try to think about who is racist and who is hateful and who does the oppressing. Those of us who think of ourselves as progressive like to think that these are anti-liberal ideologies or that being liberal means that we believe all people get to be free or I, I don't know, whatever. Like you can you can hear in my voice that I don't believe the things that I'm saying myself. But I guess what I'm wondering is, is just if you can maybe unpack a little bit about why these are not ideologies that are limited to people who are outwardly discriminatory and in fact are, you know, people just like us, people just like you and me. Yeah, that's, I think that's also a really, really great question. And I, I don't know, I don't know if I can answer it, but I can try to think through some possible uh, responses and reflections. So we want to think about how our political realities are made up of systems that include and systems that exclude. And so post-Holocaust thinkers have considered how 
the concentration camp is the paradigm of what they call a biopolitical system, which excludes certain humans from legal rights, right? And there are links. So, for example, Arendt, who I mentioned, and uh, you know Michel Foucault, Foucault um, Giorgio Agamben, want to think about how ancient political philosophical systems that we might call quote-unquote liberal have produced what they call bare life or life that can be killed with impunity, life that is killable, life that is sacrificable. And we see this also in the, um, in the thought of Alexander Wahelier, who sees in modern sovereignty a system that enacts social and political death as, as necessary. So he draws on Hortense Spiller's distinction between body and flesh to illustrate what he calls this thick historical relation between the Nazi death camp's legal state of exception and its colonial and genocidal antecedents. So what do I mean by that? He says we should see racial slavery, colonialism, indigenous genocide, and the Nazi death camps as relational. We're not reducing them to one another, but we're thinking about them relationally. Um, I'm also thinking about um, Holocaust studies scholar Michael Rothberg, who wants to think about Holocaust memory as multidirectional um, within the context of colonialism and historical genocide. It's not a zero-sum game of competitive memory. It is a relational context. Thank you. That's really helpful. So since we're talking about the various paralleled versions of atrocities, I guess maybe now is a good time for us to talk about the set of parallels we find in this book series, huh? I think that's a great idea, Hannah. All right, let's do it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, we've talked about the history, so now let's talk about the ethics of representing that history as allegory in owls. Owlsgory. I am so glad that we are finally talking about the treatment of this series as allegory, because it is something like it's sort of, you know, it's it's kind of impossible to talk about Harry Potter without recognizing that it is an allegorical series. You know, which which means that it's got all of these like striking parallels to real historical events that are deliberately invoking comparison to those events as part of how you read them. And I really I do really want us to get into like the implications of the allegory. But I think maybe we should start off by like pointing out the allegorical things mm-hmm. right does that make sense point out all of the allegories and then talk about the implications thereof 
I'm sure there are more. I'd be really interested to hear others that listeners might come up with, but here are some. So we already mentioned Dumbledore's victorious match against Grindelwald, 1945. And it's struck me on a recent reread that the sign of the Deathly Hallows, which is then appropriated by Grindelwald, really evokes the swastika, which was an ancient symbol appropriated by the Nazis, which was also not originally pernicious. So Crumb is really taken aback when he sees Xenophilius Lovegood wearing, uh, we read that filthy sign upon his chest. And, and Grindelwald appropriates it and carves it into a wall at Durmstrang. Um, and then it becomes kind of his sigil. Surely everybody has encountered some awful white hippie who's like, um, actually, this swastika is a sign of peace, so I'm reappropriating it. Yeah, I, I don't think it works that way. But that does <laughs> seem to be what Xenophilius Lovegood is going for. Yeah. So um, there are so many references in the series to blood traitor and mudblood. So I didn't mention yet the Nuremberg race laws. These were enacted in 1935. Sorry, do you mean the the Nuremberg? Exactly, exactly, right? Okay, hold, put a pin in that. Okay, so the Nuremberg race laws were enacted in 1935, forbidding marriage and intercourse between Jews and Germans. They were the so-called law for the protection of German blood and German honor. So, right, this was part of the racist ideology that Jews had to be separate from Germans to protect and strengthen Germany. Now, it does not strike me at all as coincidental that the author uses the term Nurmengard as the name for the prison Grindelwald builds to hold his opponents. When I read that, I mean, listen, our biographies always inform what we read. And I was reading book seven I think I had recently started grad school. I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I mean, all of this was like informing my reading, but I stopped and said, okay, it's not just me anymore. This is no longer subtext. This is text, right? I mean, like it is so... It's not just that it was the Nuremberg laws. It's also that Nuremberg is where so many of the trials happened as well. So it was like the site of the punishment of Nazis by the allied forces. So the fact that that Grindelwald is in a prison called Nurmengard. It seems like quite heavy-handed allegory. Yeah, absolutely. So it's I think it's a deliberate echo, both of the laws and the later trials, um, especially because, as you say, Grindelwald f- first builds it to hold his opponents and then ends up there himself once Dumbledore catches him. Another one is, I think a kind of inversion reflection of the Nuremberg Laws, which is the institution of the Muggle-born register. When the ministry falls to Voldemort, you know, we we read about how folks have to prove that they have at least one close wizarding relative. So I see that as a kind of inversion of the way that Jews were identified as having three or more, three or four uh, Jewish grandparents. One that I think is also like Nuremberg, Nuremberg, really hitting you in the face Mm -hmm. with the analogy is the slogan on the statue in the totalitarian ministry of magic after it falls. And this is magic is might. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this strikes me as an explicit echo of the infamous sign at Auschwitz, which was one of the uh, Nazi death camps. 
Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. This was, of course, a deeply ironic sign because you were only free insofar as you were free in death once upon entering the camp. So, I mean, even like the M, the, the you know, we have the alliteration mm -hmm. there. And then I recently reread this quote um, where Hermione, ever the close reader, as you've all pointed out for us, actually notices that the throne the purebloods are sitting on in the statue is, we read, decoratively carved thrones that were mounds of humans, hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children pressed together. Now, to me, this evokes the mass graves, humans made into corpses. These observations are making me think of the question when it comes to this allegory of like, who's our Hitler? Is it Grindelwald or is it Voldemort? Like, what are, what is Voldemort's power if Grindelwald is, was defeated in 1945 and imprisoned in Nurmengard? What is Voldemort? Like, it feels like a doubling of the allegory. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a really good question. And I think, so Hermione says all that right to rule rubbish. It's magic is might all over again. All over again. You know, she's, pointing out that this for the greater good that Grindelwald and earlier Dumbledore marshaled becomes transmuted into um, magic is might. So I, I suppose we could read this text as suggesting that history repeats itself. What, what do you all think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is an active thread in the series that history repeats itself because of the way that the two recent Wizarding Wars are within Harry's lifetime, right? We talked about this a bunch of episodes ago, suddenly realizing that all of the teachers have PTSD because it was only a decade ago when Harry starts school that they lost, you know, so many friends and loved ones in Voldemort's first rise to power. So I do think you're right, Andrea. I think that there's a through line in the text about history repeating itself. But I want to talk about, I, I do want to talk about it as an allegory. And so, and so Hannah, I'll, do you want to, is like, do you want to respond to Andrea? And I'll just, and, and I'll, I'm going to save my question. Yeah, I mean, we're all we're 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 both champion at the bit to talk about the allegory, but it's the the sort of repetition of the allegory, right? Of like we've got its literal mapping onto a 1945 historical event, but then also it's much more allegorical mapping onto the present day of what's happening in the 90s of the wizarding world, which I do think speaks Andrea as you were saying to the idea of history repeating itself, and I also think speaks to you know, this is a British series and post-World War II British literature is full of the haunted aftermath of the Holocaust and of the Blitz and the, you know, all of these sort of, you know, World War II holds this powerful imaginative role in post-1950 British literature. And I'm thinking right now of that great Kazuo Ishiguro novel, The Remains of mm -hmm. the Day, mm -hmm. yeah, which is in large part spoiler alert for the reigns of the day if you haven't read it which is the revelation that that you know the person that our protagonist butler is serving that he was a nazi sympathizer and that so many british people were nazi sympathizers mm -hmm. i mean we have actual historical evidence that 
King Edward, who abdicated the throne before King George, Elizabeth II's father, her uncle, he was an active Nazi sympathizer. And we have evidence that he was in correspondence with the Nazis to help him retake the throne. So it's not, <laughs> it's not even like, like for Canadians, we know how closely aligned this country is to England and how closely Canada follows British practice. And so for folks listening who again, want to think like, oh, well, even if it happened in England, like, it's over there. No, 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 we're so closely tied. The relationship is so closely tied, and we have so zero say in what the monarchy decides to do, that if this had indeed been the direction that Britain took, we, as Canada would have been compelled to either go along with it or to sever that relationship. And I do not feel that we have any historical evidence to support the assumption that we would have severed ties. You know, the Canada, Canadian policy, right, none is too many, was to not accept any refugees. So we see this all over. We see this in North America and another you know, other locations as well. But refugees were turned away. There was, in fact, nowhere for people to go. Um, Canada didn't want to accept any Jews. Um, the U.S., you know, had a quota, um, et cetera. So that you you have that um, kind of infamous Canadian policy. Mm -hmm. None is too many um, at the time. So I think that a lot of the work that the allegory is doing, I think in part, it's just if we want to tell a story about human atrocity, the Holocaust is very frequently the imaginative go-to, particularly in a European context, that like we want to describe the worst thing a person can do or the worst thing a society can do. That is the imaginative vocabulary for it. And I do think there is also this sort of idea of, you know, history repeating itself, which is so much of the way we talk about memorializing World War II and memorializing the Holocaust is about the danger of history repeating itself right that lest we forget like we cannot be allowed to forget this because if we forget it we'll do it again but that all really leads into this question of like okay so the holocaust is so frequently the imaginative go-to for an allegory through which we're going to talk generally about the human capacity for violence and for for the dehumanization of of other people yeah what do we think about the use of this event as a vocabulary of, of allegory? First of all, you know, the question of what you've all pointed out as the conservative arc of the series, ultimately, um, which is that nothing structurally ever changes. So if we're going to talk about these structures mm -hmm. repeating themselves, why mm -hmm. wouldn't they continue to do so? Number one. So how does that work with this allegory? And, you know, furthermore, for me, the, the central question about the ethics of using this allegory is what does it mean to use historical atrocity as the moral mirror for your series without actually including anyone from the targeted groups in the narrative? So 
this reminds me of a conversation that we had about how rolling like very loosely dangles queer content in the series by saying, well, of course you didn't know that Dumbledore was gay because gay people act just like all of us. And it's like, well, that's not how discrimination works. And you have created a series that is ostensibly about discrimination while not providing any kind of representation for any of the people experiencing discrimination that you're attempting to represent. Yeah, it's an allegory for discrimination in a world that doesn't make any presence for the people who are being discriminated against, but like in a way that that is then done very deliberately, which I think brings back your point, Andrea, about liberal humanism as interwoven with racialization and animalization is this this notion it's a very liberal humanist notion to be like well all humans are just humans and are indistinguishable from one another and we're all you know like hogwarts is a sort of liberal humanist ideal in which meaningful difference has been eradicated so that everybody can just be a, a human but it's very conspicuous that this fantasy of liberal humanism doesn't have anybody who is gay in a way that is gay looking like sorry i mean no gay person is gonna be offended at the idea that some people are very visibly queer and that visibly queer people are significantly more at risk for gay bashing that's pretending that nobody is marked with difference is um bullshit it's homogenization and it's erasure and effacement that was why Mm. we wanted in the original read through of the series to look for any actual jewish characters i'm so convinced by your jew watch in the original series right no there are no actual jews here just uh caricatures and convenient maybe historical allegories and yeah maybe you know you throw in somebody with the last name goldstein it doesn't count because he's a token. And you you talked about who is present at Hogwarts. If we don't have any characters with disabilities, if we have no real meaningful religious difference, if we don't have, um, you know, other forms of difference, then it's, you know, it's the same as this notion of toleration, right? It's, it's yeah. empty. <laughs> A note, too, about the absence of characters with disabilities. Mm -hmm. It is one of those absences that, you know, Rowling has said, no, there are Jewish people there. You just didn't notice. Or, no, there are gay people there. They're just not legible as gay in any way. But she has specifically said that there are no disabled people in the wizarding world. In a Pottermore article, yeah, she said there's no mundane disabilities. Which is, again, like a fantasy of a world in which disabled people don't exist is a eugenic fantasy. And so the world that is being created here in which our allegory is playing out is already a world structured by eugenicist logic, Mm -hmm. which really undermines the allegory in some pretty powerful ways. And and the the assumed subject here is able-bodied, straight, cis, Christian 
white, right? And so, you know, religious studies scholars have pointed out that um, these norms are never mm-hmm. truly secular. These, right? These these norms are always mapped onto you know specific worldviews. And I mean, and we see this we see this in in the Harry Potter narrative as well, in which everyone celebrates Christmas. We see this in the UK university system, which you know the terms are named according to the Christian calendar. So I think it's it's right. Right, right, right. It works in a way that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of on the surface here, the sort of surface allegorical reading is a, is a sound one, right? It's like, here's a world in which people are getting divided out according to their blood purity level. And that is something that has historically happened in many, many historical contexts. And we, you know, it's being played out for us in this children's series to show us that what starts as, you know, a form of bullying escalates so mm-hmm. rapidly into something much, much more terrifying. And that any attempts to divide humans according to things like blood purity are a literal slippery slope into fascism. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. that allegory is, you know, it's it's sound like it's taken a thing that's happened in many historical contexts and it's moved it over into a fantasy world and it's making an argument that is a, I think we mostly agree with. Mm-hmm. And yet dig a little bit further down and the whole allegory of the series starts to fall starts to fall apart so quickly. There's an author named Erin Mukherjee who writes about or rather the work of hers that I've that I've read is about the whiteness of early so-called feminist utopian novels and she she refers to the absence of non-white people in these novels as providential genocide like the the idea being that something happened that eliminated the problem of non-whiteness and we by eliminating it from the text we can just not deal with it and i think that in a lot of ways that's what's happening in the harry potter series any markers of difference that would complicate the text have just have have just disappeared from the wizarding world yeah or or have been applied to a convenient other creature like the house elves or like the goblins yeah the centaurs the goblins the house elves the giants these are like those are monstrous others who who not only are excluded from wizarding society but who by the end of the series we've sort of been given quote-unquote good reason for them to be excluded like they are shown to be not incorporable into wizarding society while simultaneously we're being told like excluding people based on their blood quantum is bad Voldemort is bad because he doesn't like any of these non-human magical creatures you know there was a a couple of passages that really your point is making me think of how you know we're told Voldemort considered house elves beneath his notice he treated them like animals Right. And it's so we're told Sirius never saw a creature as a being with feelings as acute as a human's. So we're given all these examples about how pernicious it is uh, to to treat other creatures 
as non-human, as animals. And yet the series gives us no indication that it will do anything different. What a bummer. Oh, you know, this conversation really reinforces my ongoing belief. Allegory is not to be trusted. Everyone's nodding. Everyone's nodding sagely. We all agree. Allegory. Mm -hmm. The most sinister of all the literary devices. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. If you want more of us, and why the heck wouldn't you? We're on Twitter and Instagram at Oh Witch, Please. And, of course, on Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of exclusive perks and follow along with our journey as we figure out what's next for the podcast and the Witch, Please team. Don't do social media? No worries, we're working on a newsletter to keep you in the loop for all of our adventures. Also, we want you to read Hannah's book. It's called A Sentimental Education, and it's available in print and ebook, and she'll even read it to you if you opt for the audiobook format. Andrea, do you have any plugs that you would like to plug? What shall we plug? Well, um, I'm still on the Twitter, so you can find me there at Andrea Dara Coop. And my book, which came out last year, is Gendering Modern Jewish Thought with Indiana University Press. And the fantastic artwork on the cover is by my sister, Jess Reva Cooper, a Canadian figurative ceramic artist. Ooh, awesome. Wait, did I already shout out my dear friend, Emily Sharp, who introduced me to the podcast and is a Canadian literature scholar, also a Canadian expat academic living in the States. Okay, so shout out to my dear friend, Emily Sharp. And yeah, I am a huge fan of the podcast and it's kind of surreal being able to talk with you all. And Emily joked that I've been preparing for this conversation my whole academic career. So thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Which Please is distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca, which is expanding every day thanks to our awesome newest team member, Gabby. You can also find transcripts, merch, sign up for our newsletter. Heck, just go check it out. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. To our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us. If you want to hear me think there's been a glitch, I think there's been a glitch. I don't know, something like that. Thanks this week to Paris, je t'aime. And bye binary. Oh, is it like bye binary? Ooh, bye binary. We'll be back next episode to add to the appendices. But until then, later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.